Okay, once again, we have fun for the whole family. All right. Uh, how many of you read Sophocles? What'd you think? What's funny about this? You all smile like, wow. That's humorous. It's so twisted in a way it is funny. Yeah, I, I have that same sort of black humor response sometimes. What'd you think? So it's all this sex and death and weird stuff and nobody thinks anything, except that it's funny. Mm, that's different. All right. Yeah? It's disturbing. Good, that's a, that's a really sane response. If you do not find this disturbing, there is something wrong with you. Right, yeah. This is another one of those badly dysfunctional families. What else? Mm. Uh, you start to like really sympathize with Oedipus, I feel like, throughout the place. Like you start to see like, oh, maybe it was fate after all and he didn't do these because he was a bad guy. Okay. Um, he is the unluckiest man in the world. He's fated to get the worst thing happened to him. Right? And he's a pariah. And he hates life, he hates existence, and he insisted he's not guilty because he didn't want to do anything wrong. We get a new idea here in the judgment of morality. Intent matters. He gets accused of being uh, a pariah, a man who's transgressed normal human moral bounds. And he says, yeah, but I didn't know. It wasn't my fault. And that's a plausible response. It's part of why he's, he's sympathetic. What else? Yeah. Yeah, it ruined your whole day, of course. Yeah. <laughs> right? He doesn't kill himself. Um, you have to imagine, all right, you have to know a little bit about Greek fashion to understand what's going on there, okay? Oedipus finds out that he's been fated, he's been cursed, he was shipped around as an infant, and uh, the result was that he ended up killing his father at the crossroads, solving the riddle because he's smart. You know, the Greeks are really smart. The problem is that they're not always lucky, or perhaps uh, they're fated to make a mess of their own lives. But he's an, exec an, exec an excellent example of a Greek because he's smart, able to fight, able to talk, able to think, able to do whatever he needs. He has many of the heroic qualities associated with Odysseus, except that this is a bad trip. This is a real bad trip. Yeah, he's going home. But this home, this, this nostos, this homecoming, it's too twisty. And you're all smiling as you are one sick bunch of people. You're all smiling like, that's really funny. No, it's not. Which, of course, makes it even funnier. <laughs> I know, I know. Isn't it really twisted? I'm a sick pup, too. I mean, I agree with all of you. No, you remember when, uh, when uh, Jocasta is telling him, look, you really don't want to go any further in inquiring about this. And he says, oh, yes, I do. And he says, no, you don't. Yes, you do. And you're all smiling and laughing now. Sick, sick, sick. I think it's funny, too. But it's really sick to find that funny. You know that. Right? There should be at best a guilty pleasure for all of you. And you're all smiling. Like, wow, that's the funniest thing I've heard. This is Oedipus, for God's sake. There's nothing funny about this. And everybody's smiling. God help us all. One of them is a mess. All right. Yeah. You're saying about Greek fashion? Oh, Greek fashion, yeah. All right. 
You have to understand how a noble Greek woman dresses. She wears something not quite like a toga, and it's not quite like a sari, like Indian women wear, if you know what those look like. A sari? Okay. What they do is they have linen of some kind, and it's pinned at the shoulders with gold brooches. So that's how, you get, that's how a woman gets dressed. It's something like an evening gown, that, but noble women wear it every day. Now, his mom has figured out that she's also um, his wife, and then, of course, it's going to make Thanksgiving very awkward. So instead, um, she decides to go hang herself. Okay, you know, that's, this is a Greek tragedy of people are messed up. So naturally, she's going to go hang herself. Oedipus has just found out the truth about himself, and he wants to go back and confront the mess he's made of his life. He finds Jocasta dead. She's hung herself, which is uh, would have been thought of as a relatively mild way of going. All right, it's an easier way than the other possible alternatives. Now, you have to remember what the scene is going to look like because they can't put this on stage because they don't have the dramatical abilities to do it. But you have to imagine this woman hanging from a noose from the uh, rafter, okay, and there, kind of spinning around lazily is the dead body of his wife, mother. Okay, now, this is just too much for Oedipus. And that's, look, too much for Oedipus is too much. All right, so he reaches up, pulls the brooches off. The result is that her clothes fall off, and then what he sees is the naked body of his dead wife, mother. And then he says, you know, this is kind of painful to see, so I'm just going to gouge my eyes out because it feels so much better. Oh, man. That's how you know you've had a bad day. When you say, I'd rather gouge my eyes out than continue to use them to look at this. Again, this is the big uh, disclosure just between privately her and Oedipus, but this is an obscene and bizarre disclosure. All right? Um, incest and uh, parasite and suicide and then self-mutilation because, look, It'd be, it'd be nice if Ed was just saying, look, let me cut my, my own throat. I should die now. But no, he's got to linger on for a while because he hasn't suffered enough. God almighty. Suffering apparently makes people wise. And Oedipus was, had confronted the fundamental unfairness of life. There's no good reason why he should have this happen to him. He happened to be cursed. Right, Jocasta and her husband got rid of him. But of course, an old servant felt bad for him. Here's the deal. If this had been a Christian play, the old servant would have been the hero, saving the kid from getting killed. Here, being nice and sentimental and kind to the child, that's just going to get everybody killed. Right? No, this is not a Christian play. There's no such thing as a Christian tragedy. Tragedy is intrinsically um, pagan because of the fact that for a Christian, there's an afterlife and a final judgment where God straightens everything out. Here, once you're dead, you're just dead. All right? It would be really nice if your family would bury you because then you could go to Hades. Otherwise, you're going to be bumping around the world as an un as one of the undead. I don't know exactly what's involved, but apparently you can't get into Hades without the proper rituals. All right, yeah. Wouldn't that be better to not get into Hades? 
Well, no. The idea is that although he sinned, it's not his fault. I mean, it wasn't intentional. So the question, we have a new question in Greek morals here, Greek ethics. Um, what makes someone morally responsible? Is it doing an action or intending to do an action? Get ready for Kant later on. All right. And look, uh, in Christian ethics, we always ask ourselves, what were the intentions of the agents? We, never, we don't hold people morally accountable for things they didn't intend or things that happened by accident. All right. If you're driving down Route 75 and you get hit by a meteor, nobody's going to say, oh, it was an awful thing for that person to do. I mean, just, that's what happens. All right. Well, um, Oedipus essentially gets hit by a meteor. Right? Something nobody saw coming, nobody could have predicted. It's the worst possible thing that happened to you, and it happened to him. And he was not a bad guy. In other words, um, he was an able, capable young man. He had many qualities of leadership and achievement. He's smart. Right? He frees the city of Thebes from the Sphinx. Granted, he kills his father at the crossroads, but anybody who had been brought up in the Greek tradition would not have been willing to take any crap from a, uh, a stranger at the crossroads. So this could have been any hero. All right. Well, what else? Yeah. So did Laius, like, try to kill him when he just saw him at the crossroads? Yeah. He so he they just... both, they, uh, they, for what reason, though? Like, oh, uh, because they, um, it was part uh, status. In other words, when you come to a crossroad, the higher status man moves on, and the lower status man waits and is deferent. Here, they both went, because they were at a crossroads. And he said, I don't know who this guy is, but he crosses in front of me. I'm going to take his head off. Hubris. Okay. What else? Yeah. <coughs> Yeah, there's lots of dramatic irony here. All right. Sophocles is a master of that. And he's realistic, but not overly so. He represents people as they possibly could be, or as they should be, not necessarily as they are. We'll have to get that from Euripides. Okay. Um, and there are lots of cruel ironies here. Um, every, just about everything Oedipus says before he finds out what the deal is, it's all ironic. Just no, no, no. And the chorus is saying, no, this is not good. We don't like the looks of this. All right? And, uh, of course, the whole family is going to get messed up. All right? So Jocasta's dead, and Jocasta's brother Creon is going to end up becoming the king of Thebes. And then, of course, his life is completely messed up, too. We wouldn't want anybody. Nobody gets out alive. Yeah? Okay, well, that would be the case if this were uh, a three-play cycle. In other words, every year, if you're going to compete in the Dionysia, in the 
Festival to Dionysus. You submit three related play, uh, tragedies plus a comedy, a satyr play at the end. These are not uh, part of a trilogy. They're actually done at very different times. They're separated by 50 or 60 years, actually. He had a very long life, Sophocles, and he was still, uh, new plays were still being produced posthumously after he died. He died two years before the end of the Peloponnesian War, so he sees that the end is upon him. Right? So, yes, the chronology is different, but that's because the plays themselves are different. Right? They weren't part of one coherent whole. So each of these was three separate standalone plays. We just don't have them. Sophocles is said to have written 120 plays and done very well. He's the most popular tragedian in Athens, and uh, only seven survive. That's really unfortunate. And there's, I think, about the same number of Aeschylus, and I think there are 20 or so of Euripides. In other words, if you wanted to read all the Greek ta tragedy, you would have no problem doing that in the summer. That's all we have of it. What we have is the good stuff. All right, what else? Yeah. Is, um, this is just a side right. question, but is Tiresias the same, um, like the blind prophet, is he the same as the god of the underworld? Or no, no, no. Tiresias is a separate guy. Okay. Um, Tiresias is a stock figure. He is Mr. Know-it-all. He sees into the future, and he's always right. In tragedies, that means that um, people that are fated to have terrible things happen to them always mock and ignore them. Tiresias. Right? That's always a sign that something terrible is going to happen to you. If Tiresias shows up and he says, straighten out, kid, you know, this is going bad. I'm an old, I'm smart, I, I'm a prophet, I see what's going on. All right? So we're going to see Tiresias again when we read Euripides. But he's in a lot of plays. He's a stock figure of the guy who sees into the future. And not, he's not like Cassandra in the sense that he, uh, he's fated to be ignored, but people ignore him anyway which just shows you how messed up people are. What else? <clears throat> Somebody a hand back there. Yeah? Um, I'm just gonna, I kind of got the sense that um, Antigone was the earlier one. What? Is Antigone the, is the earlier one? Um, let's see. Yeah, Antigone is the earliest. That's before the Peloponnesian War, 441. He's a young man then. All right? And that's out of order, because if you look at the plays himself, Antigone should be the last when Creon's family gets all messed up, right? But it was actually the first written. And it's a book. Uh, Oedipus at Colonus is posthumous. That's 401. So the, at that point, the uh, Peloponnesian War has been over for three years, and Athens lost. And what does he find out there? Only death brings freedom, which is a typically um, lively Greek insight from tragedy. You want freedom? You gotta be dead. Call no man happy until he is dead. Well, moving right along. Um, so that's uh, Oedipus and Colonus is posthumous. Antigone is, is early, it's 441. And Oedipus Rex is probably about 430, just before the, at the beginning of the war. Okay? So these are taken from far separate areas, uh, domains of time. And the context, that's why I had to read the historians first, the context is gonna tell you something about this. As you look at the prospect of the Peloponnesian War, you might have one view of Athens. Two, if you're writing uh, at the time that Athens is about to lose the war, you're going to have a very different feel. Right? That counts for a lot. That's why we do the historians first. You really need them. Okay. Um, what's wrong with this family? 
think nobody can think of anything. Yeah. Louder. A lot of incest. Oh, there's that. Yeah, there's incest. <laughs> of responsibility, but you're right though. Um, Oedipus didn't actively choose the things he was doing because he didn't know what was going on. Right? Think of the part of scripture where it says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Well, a good portion of human life that's true of. Yeah. changing and developing our ideas of right and wrong in the plays. That's what's important here. You can actually chart the uh, focus, the change of focus from uh, blood vendetta to uh, law. That's what we get in the Oristia. And here what we're going to get is the question of what makes someone guilty? Is it intent or is it the action? Yeah. With the, going back to with the law um, and how um Oh, what's his name? Didn't get punished, or he was going to get punished for killing Clytemnestra. Yeah, for killing Clytemnestra. How come then um, Oedipus didn't, when they found out he killed Laius, how come they didn't, like, give him a punishment? Really? Well, um, because no punishment is sufficient for parricide. It's the worst and most unnatural kind of murder. So the uh, penalty for murder is death. The penalty for murdering your father, well, we just don't know. We don't have a penalty bad enough for that. And the fact that you also had sex with your mother and fathered three children with her, we can't fix that. We can't. We can't, we don't know what we're going to do with that. In other words, this is uniquely awful. Yeah. All right. So in other words, well, ask yourself, what would an American do in these situations? We just don't have laws that apply to weird situations like this. You accidentally killed your father and then unknowingly had sex with your mother and started a little family. Mm, that's not good. All right, and your mom, who's all, uh, Oedipus's mom, who's also Oedipus's wife, kills herself. And the last visual image he has in his mind, before gouging on his eyes, is the dead body of his mother slash wife. No, 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 no. In other words, there's a lot, big parts of this, at least for me, that where I say my mind really doesn't want this information. Please take that back. <laughs> I sometimes feel that that way. You ever feel that way when you read uh, Dostoevsky too? Like, no, there's no need to show me that dark corner of the human soul. I would rather not know anything about that. But you insist that I have to kind of push my face and i got to look right up at it. Good God, and look at this. I mean, man, everybody's messed up. Everybody's on a one-way trip to misery, to the worst possible human circumstance. And yet, throughout all this, we have Antigone, that shining light of natural law. Mm. A shining night of a light of natural law. That's a funny thing in a kind of deeply neurotic 14-year-old girl is going to be our paragon of 
natural moral obligation. That's very strange. And also, um, why do we need Oedipus and Colas to have him die? Why can't he have him die at the end instead of just sucking up the Creon the way he does? And the tragedy is supposed to give us a death. We don't even get a death here. I guess that Oedipus' fate at the end of this is worse than being dead. I mean, because here you just have the ongoing misery and pain and nothing else. And he asks, please, for the sake of the city, drive me out of the city because now I want to be no longer a social animal. I'll bring my two uh, children with me who are also my half-brothers, half-sisters. Okay. Well, that's going to be quite a party, isn't it? Yeah? No? Okay. So, uh, the whole house is messed up. Everybody involved has something awful happen to them. There aren't any winners here. This is a lose, lose, lose proposition. There aren't all that many of those in the world. I mean, that's one of, part of what's great about Sophocles. He has one twisted imagination. Okay, yeah. So what's the story with, with Aeocles and Polynices? Can it be said of them that they, they didn't do these things, or is that not true of them? Okay. These boys allowed their father to be ill-treated. In other words, when their father was being driven out, they didn't go with him. They weren't willing to support their dad, and that was their first obligation. The girls did. The, children, the, the daughters did. The boys said, look, instead, since we're the princes of Thebes and dad turns out to be uh, unfit to be king, one of us has to be king. So they fight it out. They get a civil war. Right? And the civil war is brother against brother. And in Oedipus and Colonus, when Polynices is still alive and he comes to... Uh, Oedipus is like, Dad, fight with me. He says, no, 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 no. You turned your back on me when I had this terrible misery happen to me. I'm not supporting you. I'm not supporting your brother. Instead, I curse you both. As, a, as though there are not curse enough going around. I curse you both. May you both die from each other's swords, which they do. That's kind of a rough way to go. I mean, it's bad enough to die in warfare, but it's really bad to have your brother kill you and you him at the same time, for God's sake. So they're dead. Now Creon, who is full of sophistical ideas, who can talk himself out of anything, he's a new ruler, and he's nervous on the throne, like Machiavelli would tell him to be. Watch out. Right? You're, not, you're not securely there. So he says that he's going to uh, give honors in the death of Eteocles, uh, and the brother is going to be fed to ravens and dogs. All right. What that means is, is that Polynices, the, the brother that doesn't get the burial, he doesn't go to Hades, and he, he uh, is one of those miserable spirits that roams the earth and uh, is part of the, one, the uh, whole bestiary of science 1.0. Okay? For the Greeks, it's a big deal. Think about, once again, back to uh, the end of the Iliad. It's a big deal to get those funeral rites. It's a natural moral obligation for your closest family member to make sure that you are buried and not torn apart by dogs and eaten. Right? And you go, remember uh, Herodotus, uh, Nomos is all? 
right? This is a, a, a society in which the nomos requires a decent burial. All right? So, Antigone decides that she's going to help out. She's going to defy Creon. What's the, uh, what's the pluses and minuses of that idea? Yeah. She's dying for what she thinks is right by the gods and not by the law. Okay. She thinks that there's a moral law, a moral imperative, independent of the positive law of the state. What she's arguing for is the idea of natural law. You have a natural moral obligation to members of your family, which is prior to political order. In some ways, it reminds me of Locke's idea of the state of nature, because there's moral order there before we get this, this social contract. Well, she says, look, I have an obligation to my brother. All right, um, He's been given this terrible fate. Creon is going to make things worse. And even though it's going to cost me a lot of my life, I'm going to go and do the right thing. Okay. Now notice, um, we don't get any of the, that interesting uh, uh, prelude, any of that foreshadowing for death that we got at Oedipus and Colonus. Notice that you have to have thunder before Oedipus goes, die, goes and dies. And then he has to get buried somebody, someplace where only Theseus knows where he is. But the point is, all the advantages that come to having Oedipus there accrue to Athens, not to Thebes. Okay? So, suffering creates wisdom. That's the idea. And Athens, once again, remember that Oedipus of Colonus is at the sanctuary of the humanities, and you know who they are. Right? When you read Greek tragedy, you'll find that it all dovetails. Alright? So, it's not an accident that we're at the shrine of the humanities, who used to be the Furies, and they're not chasing after Oedipus anymore. I mean, in other words, there's nothing they could do to him to be any worse than what's already happened to him. So the humanities are actually being the kindly ones. And then we get Creon, the lawbreaker. Creon is not a king. Creon is a tyrant. He does not have a legal claim to this. Uh, Jocasta was his sister, but... The uh, throne does not go through the female line, right? But because Polynices and Antiochus have killed one another, there's a gap. Creon seizes the opportunity. But the problem is now, what do you do when you're a ruler of dubious legitimacy? And some daughter of this crazy family decides that she knows better than you about right and wrong, and about the will of the gods. You have to see how unequal this is. Um, remember that when Oedipus is a colonist with his two daughters, when they leave, uh, when they finish Oedipus the king, they're children then. This is a few years later, all right, but they're still very young. Antigone is older than Isemene, and she's not very old, 13, 14 years old. She does not understand herself very well. And self-understanding is a really big deal in Greek tragedy. Actually, it's also a real big deal in Shakespearean tragedy. Right? That know thyself theme is very, actually very important. The big question that Oedipus demands of us, asks of us is this. 
Um, you know this, the Oracle at Delphi? Well, Sophocles is very conservative and very pious about that. He takes them seriously. What Delphi says goes, you can rely on the Oracle at Delphi. Now, the Oracle at Delphi, I think, was actually made a great cultural contribution by having two things, two injunctions, two orders written on the uh, pediment of the temple. The two orders are, know thyself and nothing to excess. Now that, on the whole, is very good advice. You will avoid at least 50% of the problems in your life if you follow those two injunctions. Most of the things people do wrong are one or the other. They lie to themselves, which is the most dangerous and insidious kind of lie. And it's not a hard thing to do. We're all given to self-deception. But lying to yourself is the lie that you can't fix until something really bad happens and you realize that. In other words, you're, you're getting ready for a disaster when you lie to yourself. There's no good. Nothing good has ever come from self-deception. But the other idea, and there's much to be said for this, is nothing to excess. Have a sense of proportion. How much is enough? That's actually a really important thing to know, too. A large portion of human judgment, what Aristotle calls phrenesis, is knowing, in a given circumstance, how much is enough. How much bravery is enough. How much sacrifice is enough. How much revenge is enough? How much justice is enough? Okay, that's by no means easy because there isn't one universal rule, some algorithm that allows us to, je- to determine what exactly the right amount is. Right? One of the things that's uh, important to learn from Greek tragedy is that hubris is destructive, but it's also what makes people better than animals and almost as good as the gods. All right. Without hubris, Prometheus would never have stolen the fire of the gods. And he, and he says, uh, Prometheus claims that uh, the gods will eventually die and they'll be superseded by something else. All right. So the Greeks are all about hubris because they're pushing the envelope. But the problem is once you go from a practically useful amount of hubris, daring, to a dangerous amount, you don't know you're at the dangerous amount until you've crossed the line. So you don't find out how much is too much or how much is enough until you find out how much is too much. And think about it, if you just think about your own life. Yeah, in circumstances where you don't know what the right degree of something is, um, you won't find out until you're too far gone. That's what makes tragedy tragic. It's part of human excellence to push the envelope. Try and run the four-minute mile. Try and uh, set some other record. You can only do that by pushing the envelope and by having a very high regard for your own capacities. Right? The Greeks were all about heroism. The problem is, heroes are often their own worst enemy. Right? Why? Because they don't know themselves. And because they, don't, they lack a sense of proportion. They go too far. 
Now, the Oedipus plays are about this very simple, but also very uh, difficult problem. What happens, hypothetically speaking, if the Delphic injunctions work against one another? What if they're contradictory rather than consistent? Oedipus, unfortunately, has this lust, this tremendous desire to know who he is. And that's good advice. Know thyself. But the question now emerges, how much is a good amount of self-knowledge? Oedipus says, give me it all. And Jocasta says, no, no, no. And Oedipus says, yeah, I want it all. And Jocasta says, I'm going to go hang myself. <laughs> and Oedipus says, I still want to know who I am. <laughs> okay. Right. Now notice, Jocasta figures out before Oedipus does what's going on. That's we. You are sick people, all of you. Everybody thinks this is funny. You all need to see a psychiatrist. There's nothing funny about incest and suicide and gouging out your eyes and all the other humorous stuff you're finding in this. This is sick, sick, sick. I thought that uh, tragedy might have been a problem for ancient Athens. Hell, it's a problem for you. Everybody thinks this is funny. No, it's not. What a humorous interaction. Jocasta says, oh, no. <laughs> Oedipus says, I really want to know who I am. <laughs> Jocasta says, no, 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 you don't. And I'm going to go hang myself. Uh, remember, Oedipus, I have really sharp brooches on the top of my <laughs> gown, so when you see me twirling around from the rafter, uh, the last thing you want carved into your memory is the body of your dead, naked mother-wife. I mean, that's just... that. That, that finishes off a bad day, right? Because any guy gouges his eyes out because it feels so much better to have your eyes gouged out than to look at that. Yes, yeah, it's fun for the whole family, isn't it? Why is it that everybody finds this funny? You're all twisted. All right. Well, it is funny, which is what bothers me, too. I'm really twisted as well. I, I, I admit it's a guilty pleasure, but I find that... Uh, that back and forth between Jocasta and Oedipus, hilarious. Sick, 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 I know. <laughs> and you're laughing at it. You find it funny too, and you're as twisted as I am. Okay. Now, um, let's talk about Creon's family. What's that like? Creon, remember him? <laughs> what, what's his family like? Usurper. Well, you know. Well, it is taken either if his son is hey, interesting, hey, mom, interesting interaction where he comes on, he's like being really um, deferent, and then by the end of it, he's like, like a shouting match um, mm -hmm. about whether he should kill Antigone or not. Um, and then also, his wife. Remember that Antigone is supposed to be his daughter in law. It's going to make things complicated. So they're betrothed. Okay. And uh, the idea that dad's going to kill Antigone um, gets Hamon all excited. He says, oh, well, you know, I was trying to be deferential, dad, but you really shouldn't kill her. She's 14, and she did what was right by her family. And by the way, killing my betrothed 
it just isn't the right thing to do in a family. Yeah. It seemed like at first he was like on his side, like backing him up, and, right. and then he changed like mid conversation. Like, is that the case? Yeah. In other words, he was trying to get over on his dad. Don't tell me that none of you know what's involved in that. My daughters do it all the time. All right. So they knew how to get over on their dad. You knew how to get over on his dad. Tried it, but could only go so far because his dad can't afford to be second guessed. He can't afford to be wrong. All right. So he's in a rage with his son, and he says, "I'm going to kill her before your very eyes." Now this eye theme, of course, is not. This is the wrong family for that. All right. So Haman gets all excited. He goes off. And then we have an even worse denouement there. Who's going to present this? Somebody got, oh, do. Oh, you've been laughing at it too, huh? Please go. Do what you're doing. Do this. Is this is second actual. Uh, you do them anyway. This is second actual. Uh, uh, if I were you, I would start, I would say, with, uh, with Edmund. And then you go to Edison Hall. It's just a story that's very old. It's just for the entertainment. Yeah. Okay, I'm presenting um, Louder. I'm presenting on Oedipus Rex. So, um, yeah, so it's a story of obviously unavoidable fate. And although Oedipus does not clearly intend all of the outcomes, I'm going to go through and show how his hubris does lead to a lot of the falling out of the faith that's <coughs> So the first part um, of his fate that he's bound to kill his father, what first launches that is when he actually hears out about, finds out about his fate, and he hears from the oracle that he's fated to kill his father and marry his mother. So he leaves his adopted parents, who he believes to be his real parents, an attempt to actually avoid the fate, which just ends up furthering his fate along, ironically, and leads him to going to meet his father and killing him. But the act of trying to avoid his fate in a way is an example of hubris because a fate is a fate and he can't really change the fate of the gods. And what he's trying to do is to put himself above the gods in a way and show that he can actually change what his fate is for him. So that sort of hubris leads him to go on and to kill his father and to fulfill. Okay, remember, just for a second, remember that some problems don't have a solution. Oedipus's problem of being fated to kill his father and have sex with his mother and start a family, um, what's the good way of dealing with that? Killing yourself? Or running away, trying to avoid that? Running away is the natural thing to do. The problem is, when you run away, you can't run away from fate. It's not going to work. So, um, one of the things that the Greeks are looking at here is something like the Melian dialogue. What do you do in circumstances when there's no good choice? How do you figure out which choice is the least bad? And whatever the least bad choice was, it wasn't what actually happened to Oedipus. Go ahead. Yeah, so I think he, he doesn't really know what choice to do, as you said. But um, part of the hubris that he has that is an immediate cause of um, his fate. And then so, obviously, in his fleeing from his adoptive parents is when he goes and meets his 
going on. And he mentions like, your perfect sight will darken, then your balmy marriage will at once become a hostile sea in which your household sinks. And a mass of other evils still unseen makes your father's evil and your children's too. So Teresa sees everything that's going on and mentions like, your sight is gonna be gone, kind of predicting um, Oedipus's blindness all in the end, in a way. And yeah, so Oedipus thinks, again, through his fingers, that he knows everything going on. And he thinks that from leaving his adoptive parents, he thought that he was fleeing his fate. But really, Theresius can see that that led to his demise and his destruction. And so there's Oedipus who thinks that he can see everything and thinks that he has this great sight. Well, Theresius is like physically blind, but is the one who actually sees everything. Yeah. Sight is going to be a metaphor for knowledge throughout this. Theresius is conventionally a blind seer, so he's physically blind but can see into the future, so he has that second insight. Whereas Oedipus starts out with the physical sight but lacks the insight and then switches one to the other. And so Oedipus is really the last one to see the whole picture. As you mentioned, Jocasta realizes before him everything that's going on and tries to stop him from figuring out who he is, and she goes off and kills herself. And it seems all the pieces are there, but Oedipus still refuses to see the whole picture and to believe it. So he really is the most blind one, even though, ironically, he thinks that he is the one who creates the city. And when he finally sees what's going on, he gouges out his eyes. Yeah. So then Very he nice. becomes blind and physically blind, but he then knows everything. So it's, again, that irony. And then another interesting piece of like irony, as you mentioned, there's a lot of dramatic irony. Oedipus in the beginning mentions that he will do everything he can to find who killed Lysias, and he says, I'll even search for him as if he were my father's murderer, which of course it is, and it's himself, which It's a horrible set of irony. And you all can be quiet. Yeah, so then I just want to end by touching again on like the lesson that the fate cannot be avoided no matter what. And so again, another um, character who tries to like change the fate is Jocasta because when Oedipus is born and she hears the oracle that her son is fated to kill her husband and her son's father, she leaves Oedipus to be killed as an infant thinking that she can avoid the fate. But then again, kind of within that pride of thinking that you can avoid your fate, that leads they actually happening and then also her marrying her son and leads to her terrible outcome and suicide. And That's exactly right. The harder you try to avoid fate, the quicker it comes to you. So the whole story kind of really makes you question and realize that the oracles do need to be paid attention to. And it's interesting because at one point Oedipus said the oracles are useless when he was trying to figure out who he was, and um, Jocasta uses the example of her leaving Oedipus to die son to say like, oh, the oracles and fate can be overcome because I left my son to die to avoid my son killing my father, but without her realizing yet that she actually did not overcome that, and so really you cannot overcome your fate at all, and the oracles Good job.
version of Oedipus doesn't end with a death is that this is worse than being dead. I mean, we can get another play at least out of this. I mean, he's stumbling around with his eyes gouged out and uh, his daughter's helping around. Go ahead. instantly takes him for his word 
it offers him aid. And there's that idea of hospitality I see coming back. You're in my land, yes. I'll protect you, which is very important and also a very righteous view of Athens itself. Uh, when Creon comes, he claims to pity Oedipus, but Oedipus will have none of this. He uh, sees right through him. So Creon tries to steal his daughters, and Theseus rescues the daughters. Very, very heroic scene when he comes back, and they're like, oh, father, look at this prince that saved us. And it's, um, this is further representing the righteousness of Athens um, and the, law, um, the lawful righteousness of Athens. Uh, Oedipus's son, Polynices, arrives begging his father's forgiveness. Um, but Oedipus doesn't even want to hear what he has to say. It is important to note, though, that Oedipus does end up listening to him <coughs> only because his daughter Antigone convinces him to. Um, this is another place where we have kind of this uh, philosophical and uh, rhetorical argument and monologue from one of the characters, and in this case it's Antigone, and she actually has a couple of them during the book, and as we see going into the next book that Joni will um, present, uh, she's a very intelligent young girl, and she's very She's very good at uh, speaking. And so she, he listens on, on account of her words, uh, but he, he does not forgive his son. He actually ends up cursing both of his sons um, and prophesied as well that they will end up killing each other in battle. Uh, going on further into the play, um, Oedipus ends up realizing he's about to die, and in order to um, repay uh, Theseus for all that he's done for he and his daughters, he, uh, he wants Theseus to see where he is buried and to pass that on to his son and his son's sons. And they have to keep it a complete secret, but in this way, Athens will forever stay safe from enemies. Um, this is obviously significant um, for the Athenian. Uh, the Athenians watching this play at this time because they were going through a, you know, a raging war for so many years, and this idea um, that their land is blessed is um, a really important one. Um, now I'm going to go over just some significant parts. Um, and things that stood out to me about this play. Uh, there seemed to be a theme of redemption, which was not apparent in Oedipus Tyrannus, um, which I know I brought that up earlier as a question, but in, in Oedipus Tyrannus, uh, we had talked about how he didn't end up dying. Um, he did end up gouging out his eyes, which is seemingly worse than death. Um, but throughout the whole play, once he finds out what he did and once everybody else finds out what he did, he's completely shunned. In fact, he even shuns himself. He can't even see himself or anything that reflects him, um, his wife or his children. And so he gouges out his eyes. And so there's no redemption in that play. What he did was so unbelievably sick and wrong that he's unseeable. Um, but in this play, there, there's seemingly a lot of redemption. Uh, he, he seems to have kind of turned the curve in his life and, and realized, you know, Everybody's been like looking at me like this, but I actually think I'm a little bit justified in what I've done because I wasn't aware of it while I was doing it. Um, and so he presents himself in a redemptive way, and furthermore, Theseus, more importantly, um, sees him in a redemptive light as, as well. Uh, and this struck me as interesting because I know that this is a play, um, arguably, uh, maybe the last play Sophocles wrote, if not one of the very last that he wrote. And he was, I believe, in his 90s when he wrote yeah, this movie. Well. This is where we dated it. And I do wonder, I do wonder if this theme of redemption is also um, uh, Sophocles reflecting on his own life. And as you get older, you're kind of like, oh man, I didn't, you know, I made a lot of mistakes in my life. I hope there's some redemption, you know. And so maybe Sophocles did have this idea that, uh, 
that we do need redemption in order to go into the afterlife, whatever that is that you may believe the afterlife is, there needs to be some sort of redemption before you die. Um, so maybe, and I don't know this for sure, but maybe this play being nearing the end of his life, he's starting to reflect more on his life, and so it is a reflection on his thoughts. You're right, um, because that can be taken further. Um, this is two years, he's writing this, uh, the last, the year that he dies, it's two years before the final fall of Athens in 404. So Athens is on the brink of being destroyed by the Spartans. And this is his, not only his evaluation of his own life, it's his evaluation of his hometown. Look, you really can't, uh, you can't escape your fate. You, you gave it a good shot, but instead, ultimately, you caused your own destruction the same way Oedipus did. And uh, we've been blessed by Oedipus being in our town, and hopefully, we ourselves will have some sort of redemption in the future. But it's very clear at the time this is being written that Athens is about to be destroyed. So, so we're looking not, not just at the end of uh, Sophocles' life, we're looking at the end of Athens' life. Right, so this is uh, brief, he lays at the, the foot of Athens before he dies. Yeah. Um, and some further points uh, was something I had already pointed out throughout the, um, my order of events that I've already given you is that this play is filled with much philosophical um, dialogue, which I also think is noteworthy. Uh, we had talked about how um, uh, sophistry was kind of on the rise, and I think that that's very, very apparent in this play. Uh, you have a audience of Athenians that are listening to these long soliloquies that are um, very well put together and, um, and very convincing in how much words can convince people. And in, in the first play, in Oedipus Rex, Oedipus is no words were going to save him. No words were going to save him. He was a sick, sick, sick human being. But in this next play, that's turned around, and he can convince people of his innocence through his words. Whether or not you believe that he's innocent or not is um, not important. It's the fact that he actually was able to convince an entire people of Athens that he was in innocent after he did all these incredibly awful things. Um, so I do think that that is noteworthy, um, and also that a lot of those wise words were from a young girl, Antigone. Um, and I do think that it shows Oedipus's uh, growing wisdom. And I do know that that's also a theme throughout the Greek uh, plays in all of them. You see that um, through suffering comes wisdom, and I think that this is another point that points back to that. The downside of this is that you don't get wisdom until you've messed up. Um, and then there is also a theme of the inescapability of fate throughout this, as we see in actually all three of the plays, obviously. Uh, and it's this idea that no matter how innocent you may be in your actions, um, you are still fated to engage in the wrong actions if you've been given an unfortunate fate. This in and of itself speaks of some sort of redemption to me because it kind of, it makes you feel bad for mankind in a way where it's like no matter how hard you try, guys, you're just going to screw up. Um, so there's something kind of comforting about that, even if the way you screw up is sleeping with your mom and having kids, really sick things. But maybe, maybe they saw this as some sort of a comfort. It was in some way, um, it was in some way of kindness to the Athenians to say, you know, you guys have really screwed up, but maybe you were just fated to screw up. So it's not completely your fault. So that's kind of comforting in a weird, weird way. Um, and then another point um, is Oedipus's blindness, which I know she had already pointed out. Uh, it seems to point back, uh, back to the blind seer, um, Tiresias, uh, who Oedipus had mocked um, before realizing he was telling the truth. 
And it made me think about how uh, a physical blindness might suggest spiritual sight. Um, and throughout this play, Oedipus prophesies a lot, and he um, foresees a lot, and so it's almost like he's the new Tiresias. Um, he he uh, he curses his sons, and and they end up killing each other, as we see in Antigone, and um, and I think, and he also curses uh, in Creon at one point. And uh, I was thinking while I was reading this, well, this is interesting. Can just anybody curse? somebody and it comes true, or do you have to be a special person? So that's something I actually wanted to ask you. All right, yeah, um, that's, a, that's, that's actually an excellent question to ask. Um, back at the time of Greek tragedy, or the time of the Old Testament, we people dealt with words differently from the way they deal with them now. Right? Uh, think of, uh, think of uh, Jacob, and his brother, what's the older brother's name? Esau. What? Esau. Esau, yeah. Um, uh, we have old, uh, the father is old, and Esau is the elder brother. So Esau is supposed to get the father's blessing, and the majority of the property goes down to the male line. Um, the mother, Sarah, is it? I forget some. What? Rachel. Rachel. Well, right. Whoever it is, the mother helps. Uh, the younger son, the second son, get over on the father. The father says the words, and then the other son comes back in, and, and he's been duped. Okay, nowadays, if we were to do that, all right, suppose you had uh, another sibling, your father, you know, was duped because he was old and blind, and the mother was in cahoots. They have uh, to give the blessing to the wrong son, son number two. Okay. Um, now we would say, okay, son number one, come on over here. I'm going to ignore that. That's not the real thing. I am now going to say the blessing for you, and you're all set. Okay. Why can't they do that during the Old Testament? Here's why. He said the magic words. And once you say the magic words, words have power. Words have uh, qualities that are not simply markers of meaning. In other words, there's a, it's like saying a, a magic word that actually changes the world. Once he has pronounced the blessing, the blessing has been said. It can't be unsaid because words are magic back then. Right? So now, um, here, there's also a magic to words. Curses mean something. If you're cursed, you're done. That's bad. There's nothing you can do to fix that. So, who's cursed in this? Well, Oedipus is cursed, and his family is cursed. Jocasta's cursed, and so is his dad uh, that gets killed up the crossroads. His children are cursed. His Polynices and uh, Eteocles, they kill each other. And then there are the two unmarriageable daughters that follow him around. They're also cursed. Creon gets cursed in the process. Haman curses his son, curses his father, Creon. Creon curses him back. In other words, everybody's cursing everybody else. And this, these are magic words. These have power. In other words, um, it's what uh, linguists call a performative. Um, the difference between a performative and a descriptive is this. If I say the table is gray, I'm telling you something that describes the table. But if I say a justice of the peace, and I'm in front of a couple that want to get married and they go through the ritual 
at the end of it, I say, I now pronounce you man and wife. That's not a description. That's a performative. When I say those words, bang, you are man and wife. So saying the word accomplishes something in the world. Just like giving a sentence. I'm the judge. I'm proven guilty. I say, I'm going to sentence you to the following. And what that means is you are going to spend exactly that amount of time in jail. Again, it's a performative. To utter that statement is to make it come true. Right? So words for us now are very different. We've, they've been uh, drained of their magic for us. Right? They just describe the world. Back then, if you say, I curse you, you're cursed. And you may well not be able to get uncursed. And say, the blessings work the same way. You know? How does that work for actors if people were like this, performing a scene and one of them said, I curse you? Right. Um, I don't think that it would be a problem within, within the uh, domain of this religious art form. All right. So I don't think that, that will, will matter. So uh, you're onto something very good here, this power of words. Think about uh, those who come in the name of God are great people. The name is magic. The name is different. Thou shalt not use the Lord's name in vain. Magic word, you're not allowed to say Yahweh. Um, the, only the high priest is allowed to say in the uh, Holy of Holies once a year. Apart from that, you can't use God's name. It's too powerful. Right? Words are magic back then, but in a way that they're not now. Right? So once you've been cursed, particularly with somebody who's cursed, it's supposed to be really bad, your parent, your family, something like that. Okay? Everybody's cursed here. Good job. Thank you. Um, and the last point I had was uh, what the whole play has been building up to, of course, is that the play the play ends gloriously for Athens. No matter which way you slice it, um, this is a triumph for Athens. Uh, so it's actually, I don't know, I guess it's considered a tragedy, but it's uh, it's got a pretty redemptive ending for the audience. So I don't think the audience is crying at the end of this. Like the end of War of the Orchestra. Um, there are a few uh, tragedies that don't end in death, and when they do, there's always some important reason why. Here, Athens is a smoking room. They, they lost the Peloponnesian War two years ago. This is written, or three years ago. This is written two years before it ends, but it's clear what's going to happen. This is his way of saying, look, even the greatest of spirits um, can't successfully fight against fate. Athens is edifice. Good job. I like the fact that it's funny. It's, 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 oh, that's funny. And so do you. I've got that sick mind. You have the sense of humor of Lady Big I don't know if I should be proud of this, but. Okay, well, um, I had Antigone, and um, just as to start out, I would say it kind of has a lot less nuance than the other two. Um, it was written a lot earlier. I don't, know if, I don't know. It seems to me in a few ways to have less like artistry and dramatic irony and more is kind of about like making a point. Like I can see it kind of like how Dickens books because he was like paid to write them and he like you know had to produce them. They kind of a lot of them are kind of like lame um, and like a lot of filler and you're just like making a point and um, 
needless extra characters and needless descriptions. Fair enough. Exactly, and I think for this play, it's pretty. It's I thought it'd be kind of cut and dry, like tragedy. Like it has all the elements, and everybody dies at the end, except Trion. Um, so anyway, so I'll get into the uh, the events. To start it off, uh, it's got a kind of difficult backstory to it. Um, the Civil War has just ended. It's like the day after. Um, and uh, forgive me for the pronunciation, Eteocles? Eteocles. and Polonices have killed each other. And the opening scene is Antigone talking to Ismini, and she's telling her that that Creon has forbidden anyone to give Polynices burial rights, and that she's absolutely going to ignore him. And Ismini is like, I can't believe you're thinking about doing this. Like, um, we have to submit to whoever's most powerful. And I found this is kind of like the beginning of a theme. With uh, I did find that I was thinking of the Sophists a lot during the theme, so this definitely like making me think of Thrasymachus. Creon is, um, the whole idea of might makes right is pretty strong in Creon, and that um, Ismini's behavior and kind of um, reaction to Creon is like that she's accepting this, that might makes right, and that um, we should listen to the laws of whoever's in power. Um, she says, I'm ruled by stronger hands, we must submit to this, I'm forced, I have no choice, I must obey the ones who stand in power. And Antigone has the completely opposite um, view. She's called irrational, absurd. Um, she says, uh, you know, lead me to my own absurdity, um, which is like kind of interesting. But she clearly has the sense that she's doing what's right. But their worldviews are just like, they don't intersect um, in that Antigone's main value is this idea of natural law, and Ismini is like, might makes right, and I should listen to the king. Um, so anyways, so they have that conversation, and then the next thing we see is the chorus. They're kind of like um, talking, kind of re re recapping everything that happened. Um, and Creon comes out, makes his big announcement, um, and the chorus submits to him, like Ismini did. Um, and so Creon says, you know, no one can bury Polynices' um, burial rights. Um, I absolutely forbid it, and honestly, it kind of made sense to me. I mean, he's like, I mean, he was explaining it like, look, this guy, you know, we said he couldn't have the throne, and then he comes off and like starts a civil war, and like now we're supposed to give him burial rights? I don't think so. Like, I'm not gonna honor both brothers equally. And I was, I mean, I definitely see where he's coming from in that respect. Um, just as an aside, um, and then so he's kind of he's talking about this. And then um, a sentry comes on scene. I think this is actually a really interesting character um, because he's just, it's just like not what you would expect in this situation. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's kind of like, you know, those Shakespearean characters that come on and you're like, why aren't you taking this very seriously? Kind of like cracking jokes or whatever. Um, and I kind of saw him, the sentry arrives with the news that um, someone had um, sprinkled dust on the body, which would have sufficed for the burial. Um, your obligation mm -hmm. to bury your family member. Um, so it's like, darn it. You know, he doesn't even have to have like a mound, a burial mound. He just has to have dust, you know, over him. So that happens. And the sentry arrives and he's like, I don't know why I'm here. Um, like, because you're going to kill me. Please don't kill the 
messenger, um, but we failed to prevent some, anyone from performing burial rites. And of course, and uh, Creon goes on this kind of big thing about money, and it's kind of interesting, and um, how like money corrupts, and you guys are all, um, someone probably paid you off to do this. Um, and I just kind of saw this entry as like a, a product of sophistry in a way. At one point he says, um, he's kind of talking about like betraying people, and he says, it hurts a man to bring down his friends, but but all that, I'm afraid, means less to me than my own skin. That's the way I'm made. <laughs> so he like kind of admits that there's a, some moral sense, but he actually doesn't care about it at all. He has to kind of ignore the
he's asked this by Heman, and Heman's like, what a good king you'd make on a desert island by yourself. Like, what are you talking about? <laughs> about yourself? Um, and so this is kind of, this whole idea is that Priam sticks by this idea that he's protecting his own right as a king over the city and over the honor of the gods, which is Antigone's, um, her reasoning is that this is what the gods want, and I don't care what Priam says if this is what, like, the natural law says. Um, so anyways, he he wants to protect his own rights first. Um, and so then Antigone is dragged away. Um, she's put in a tomb alive to, like, um, die there. Um, and at the very end, she says, quote, I alone see what I suffer now at the hands of what freedom men, all for reverence, my reverence for the gods. So that's her reasoning for why she's sticking to the story and why she performed the burial and then, so she's dragged off, and then Teresius comes in um, to kind of like save the day. But so he's trying to convince Creon. Creon's like, I, of course I'm going to listen to you. Like I never, you've never known me to not listen to you. And then Teresius like, you gotta not do this. Like you gotta stop. You gotta, you know, take it, take it back. You gotta make up with your son. You know all this stuff. And, Chris, and Creon's like, wait, no, I'm not gonna do that. Like make me look so bad. And then um, the chorus kind of like adds some support for Teresius, and then Teresius is like, if you don't do this, your, your son's gonna die. And Creon's like, okay, never mind. I'm gonna, I'm backing off here. I, clearly, this wasn't a good idea. Um, and this is part of the theme of like listening to good advice. Um, Heyman says that in his speech, um, like that's his biggest thing that he wants to tell his father, like listen to the people who wanna give you good advice. And Creon's like, no, I refuse to. Hubris. Um, so, anyways, he finally relents, goes, buries a map, like buries um, Polynices, um, and then when he goes to the tomb where Antigone is, um, they find out that Haman had gone down. She had hung herself. He was down there. Um, Antigone had hung herself, um, and they get down there, and Haman's very distraught. And he kind of like flashes out, and then he ends up just like stabbing himself and killing himself. Um, and so then Creon takes his body back. Um, and then in the meantime, <laughs> um, they, it's kind of interesting actually, they have like the chorus um, talks to Creon's wife who comes yeah, down. Yeah. Um, and then <clears throat> another messenger comes and is like, truth is always the best option. <laughs> it's kind of interesting. Um, and then he's like, yeah, your son killed himself. Um, and she's like, goes away silently. And the chorus is like, that's worrisome that she just went away silently. And the messenger's like, no way, that's just <laughs> nothing. And then he's like, actually, maybe I should go check on her. So then he goes and checks on her, creates <laughs> back with his son. The messenger comes out like, oh, your wife just killed herself. She's, and then she cursed you. And Creon's like, um, well, he, yeah, what else can he say? Um, he blames himself, um, and yet he doesn't get wisdom from suffering until everybody's dead, um, except for him. Um, That's the way tragedy works. You don't find out how much is too much until you've gone too far. Um, and then, so yeah, so that's the story, and then just some themes slash, uh, things worth mentioning. Um, I think the major theme
named are, are the interests of the city paramount before family and natural law? Um, the natural law versus civil law, what I was talking about in terms, in terms of participants, might makes right versus traditional values. Um, uh, so a question of the gods, well, like they'll back up human decency despite the verdict of king, which is kind of an interesting thing in ancient, to be saying in an ancient um, civilization. Another thing that's interesting I thought was that the gods aren't present in the play, uh, like the other plays of Sophocles, unlike the Orsaya, for example. Uh, none of them are actually have any lines or have any presence, except that they're kind of there. worse than it sounds. You wouldn't think that possible. But um, the Greeks are an inventive people. Let's start out with Theseus in Oedipus Colonus. He's going to be our king of Athens. He's our savior. What do you know about Theseus and how did he get to be king of Athens? Uh, yeah. Wasn't it just like a myth? Like, wasn't he just like... They're all just myths. He just put, like, was proclaimed the founder of the city. No, he's, he, the city's... Uh, much older than he is. Oh, okay. Didn't he kill the Minotaur? The Minotaur, yes, he kills the Minotaur. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of a it's another one of those weird Greek things. Um Theseus, uh, at the time that Theseus is a young man, his father is the king. His father is King Aegeus, A-E-G-E-U-S. His name is going to give the Aegean Sea its name. Okay. Now, at the time they have a problem with Crete. The Minotaur lives there in a labyrinth. And every year, the Athenians are forced to send ten young men, or no, seven young men, seven young women to Crete to be eaten by the Minotaur. And this kind of bums them out. I mean, they really don't want their children eaten by the Minotaur. You kind of understand that. Fair enough. So, um, Theseus says, Dad, I'm a Greek hero, so I have to go on a journey, and I have to fight people. <laughs> well, Aegeus says, okay, that makes sense to me. Who do you want to go fight? He says, uh, I'm going to go kill the Minotaur, because it's eating our children. Well, okay, that's a good idea. I mean, you, everybody would think you're great if you go and kill the Minotaur. So he, he goes to Crete, and uh, he sails on a ship with a chosen, hand-picked crew, and his dad says, here's the deal. Uh, have any of you ever been to the uh, Temple of Poseidon uh, outside Athens? No, okay. Temple of Poseidon is on a long spit of land, and it look, it's on this you know, big cliff, and it looks out, on the Aegean, which didn't have a name yet, it was just the water. Okay, so he says, uh, these, uh, rather, uh, Aegeus says to his son, here's the deal, I'm really anxious about you going to be a hero and killing the Minotaur and all, so here's the deal, on the way back, I want you to give me a signal as to whether you've succeeded or failed. If you put up a white sail, 
That means that you're coming home a victor and you've killed the Minotaur and he won't be able to eat our children anymore. But if you lose the battle with the Minotaur, the Minotaur kills you and eats you, I want your comrades to come back with a black sail. And that means looking out on this big spit of land from the Temple of Poseidon, I'll be able to see whether you're alive or dead. Okay. So that's the premise. Now, Theseus gets there with his pals, and they realize they can't work out the problem of the labyrinth, because he's brave, but maybe not all that quick. There's a fair number of Greek heroes that are like that. Okay. So... He's looking around, trying to figure out how he's going to solve this problem of the labyrinth, because it's one thing to get in there and attack the Minotaur, but then how do you get out? In Crete, the king's daughter, Ariadne, right, falls in love with this Greek hero. This happens a lot in Greek myths. She's a young girl, you know, here we're talking about 13, 14 years old, all right? Um, and she becomes infatuated with him. She sees him as kind of a godlike figure. So she says, here's the deal. Ariadne says, I'll help you defeat the Minotaur, and I'll help you destroy my father's labyrinth, but if I help you do that, Dad's going to know I was involved, so you've got to take me with you and make you, me your bride. So I'm going to be the queen of Athens. Theseus right. um, says, no problem. How are we going to solve this problem? She says, I'm great at spinning. And so what I have here is a ball of yarn. When you go into the labyrinth, stretch out the string, all right, and that way you'll be able to retrace your steps after you attack the Minotaur and kill him. Okay. All looks good. So Theseus goes in heroically with a sword and a ball of yarn. <laughs> right. He's unrolling the yarn, gets to the Minotaur, fights him and kills this fearsome half-man, half-bull. Okay. He's coming out. He gathers his men. It's time to jump on the ship now because, you know, the Cretans are going to be angry. And Ariadne says, you promised. And she says, okay, you come too. So they take off from Crete. Now, Theseus is looking at Ariadne. And he's thinking, what have you done for me lately? Because, granted, you helped me destroy the Minotaur and get out of the labyrinth. But I don't want to marry you. You're crazy. Right? Um, you turned your back on your own father and your own family, and you are bad news. So I'm going to have to lose you in the process of getting home. So they come to an uninhabited island. They say, Ariadne, here's your new home. <laughs> And Ariadne is unceremoniously tossed off the ship. She's at the island. Get ready for this. She's going to say the magic words. She curses Theseus. And you know when people are cursed, that's all messed up because that the magic words have been said. All right? Now, eventually, uh, one of the goddesses is going to turn her into a spider. I forget who or why, but um, she's great at spinning. Um, and um, that's going to be her fate. But... She curses Theseus. Theseus says, later, goes back to Athens, sailing in with a ship. Theseus is not all that quick, apparently. So um, he forgets to change the sail on a ship. 
His father is looking out in the distance from off the, on this promontory where the uh, Temple of Poseidon is, and he sees the faithful black sail. In despair, he takes a flying leap off the, prom the promontory and is smashed uh, at the water and the rocks below. Thus, he gives his name to the Aegean Sea. That's what they call it, named after Aegeus. Aegeus had a bad time because his son was stupid, because he got himself cursed, and just didn't change the sail, which has got to be the single stupidest thing that we've seen in any of these people. In other words, everybody's got a bad time, but you could have at least used your head and thought to change the sail. He's just stupid. Ah, right. oh, sorry, Dad, I was careless. And Dad's, of course, dashed on the rocks. Okay. All right, so he comes back and says, i got to tell my dad, I killed the Minotaur. Everybody's <laughs> looking at him like, black sail. All right, dad's been dashed on the rocks because you didn't change the sail, nitwit. I says, oh, wow. <laughs> Bummer. <laughs> I guess I'm king. Yes, you are, but you're going to get yours. Theseus. Okay. So Theseus causes the needless, despairing death of his own father. Again, once again, fun for the whole family. And uh, Theseus is going to seem like a hero here, but he too is cursed. Seems like everybody's cursed. And all these curses are sooner or later going to be realized. So you need to know that because uh, Aegeus is going to be important when we read Euripides next week. So you have to know that Theseus is the son of Aegeus, and Aegeus ends up coming to a bad end. Notice how all these stories are dovetailed. Uh, the Homeric poems and the tragedies all riff off each other. They're all connected to each other. They are all appealing to a, a body of myth that everybody recognizes. In other words, when you sit in a Greek tragedy um, back in ancient Athens, everybody knows the story that we're going to hear about. Right? It's how the particular playwright is going to handle that, how they're going to characterize the people, and what the dynamics are going to be like that changes one to another. Okay, So you need to know about Theseus because we're going to meet Aegeus, his dad. All right. Um, when we read Euripides. Okay, that's the first background you need to know. Second thing is Antigone. All right, I think this play, and many critics think this play, is somewhat more complicated than it appears to be. Here's why. Antigone, all right, is a young girl who does not know herself very well and also lacks a sense of proportion. In other words, she violates the Delphic injunctions. Okay. Do you think, given her upbringing, and given the fact that mom committed suicide because um, dad is her son, and uh, that dad gouged his eyes out, we've had to walk around with him in the intervening years, and the fact that no one will have anything to do with them because they're pariahs, because they're ritually polluted. Um, Antigone means no marriage. That's 
the name of her, or that's what her name means. Okay. Anti, opposite, no marriage. Okay. Antigone, how can I put this? Her upbringing has caused her psychological problems. So yeah, she's the great example of natural law thinking, which is a funny thing to find in a mentally disturbed 14-year-old girl. I mean, here she's thinking these deep thoughts. I mean, she's not exactly Aristotle, all right? Okay, so um, she is one really twisted individual, all right? Which is what you would expect from her upbringing. You know, watching dad gouge his eyes out and all, and then, you know, kind of walking around with him. Uh, mom's dead, uh, the two brothers are dead, all right, and uh, they're pariahs, you know, they're driven at pillar to post. Okay. Antigone is just hitting puberty. She'll be 13, 14 years old, all right. She does not know herself, nor does she know her motivation. She doesn't understand her own, her own reasons for doing things. At some level, she believes that what she's doing is following the command of the gods, natural law, which you get by natural reason. But she's a 14-year-old girl who's totally twisted. So she's not an, a great example of philosophical reason. Instead, some of the wires in her brain are seriously crossed, particularly the ones pertaining to sex and death. Now, Freud called those the two poles, like a battery, of the human mind. Life and death, sex and destruction, eros and thanatos. And she seems to have a, a strange mental orientation. First off, during the entirety of the play, she shows, she shows, no, she shows no interest and no concern about Haman who's her betrothed. She never says, oh, wow, I really wish I could marry Hamon. Or Hamon, why don't you come plead my case? She ignores him. She seems to have no interest in Hamon, which is part of why she's willing to die, because she knows where this leads. But also, um, her sexual feelings, which are kind of early and primitive at this point in her life, she's a young girl, um, and her close connection to death and destruction, the wires have been crossed, okay? Think of it this way, suppose I'm a psychiatrist, right? And I ask you to do, and I ask a patient to do free association, all right? I see something, you tell me what it reminds you of. And the idea is we're gonna find out how your unconscious works because whatever it is you come up with um, indicates some, something operating in your subconscious, all right? You were going to look at uh, line 891, and Antigone says, My tomb, my bridal bed, my house, my prison, cut in the hollow rock, my everlasting watch. Here's what I want to do for you, okay? I'll say something, you tell me what pops into your mind. I say to Antigone, tomb. She says, bridal bed. Well, that's different. I don't know if, I mean, maybe I could ask the rest of you ladies. If I say tomb to you, just bridal bed, is that the first thing that comes into your head? Well, it's the first thing that comes into her head. The connection between her bridal bed, where she has sex and gives life, 
and her tomb, the wires are crossed with this girl, and she's really twisted. All right. So she's always, always at the end. She's saying, "That's a shame. I'm not going to get married, but I am going to be dead." Okay, that's different. But again, what would you expect from somebody that grows up like her? She's cursed. The family's cursed. Everybody's committing suicide and incest and great stuff like that. Um, she's really twisted. She does not find Haman interesting or sexually attractive. Haman finds her attractive, but that's not the problem. All right. She has no interest in Haman. Who does she have a very unwholesome interest in? Polynices, her dead brother. Now, I want you to get this, because this is actually, I mean, critics have been arguing about this for 25 centuries. Yeah, it's worse than you think. This would, this would be line 995 to 1,000. This is where she explains, I mean, after she's done all this stuff about natural law, just before she dies, she actually comes to a realization as to why she really did this. Never, I tell you, if it had been my, the mother of children, or if my husband had died, exposed and, or, never, I tell you, if it had been the mother of children, or if my husband died, exposed and rotting, I'd never have taken this ordeal upon myself. Now remember that natural law applies to your children and your husband too. Never defied the people's will. What law, you asked, do I satisfy with what I say? A husband dead? There might be another. A child by another too if I had lost the first. So children are replaceable, husbands are replaceable. But my mother and father both lost to the, to the halls of death. No brother could ever spring from them again. Okay, so she's only willing to defy Creon to bury Polynices. If it had been her husband, her child, and look, there's no more close, no closer connection than mother with her own, the child of her own flesh. She said, look, I let them rot. Uh-huh. And why is it you would let them rot? Well, they can always be replaced. Okay. So you could replace your children, I guess. You could replace your husband, yeah, I guess. But you can't replace your dead brother. Um, she has a very unwholesome, incestuous desire that she does not recognize for her dead brother. And she doesn't let the fact that he's dead get in the way. Again, this is beyond twisted. Um, it's easy to misread this play as being a very simple, straightforward, lesson in natural law. Yeah, it's that, but it's also a lesson in how people deceive themselves. She thinks she's doing this to honor the gods. She's doing it because she has a thing for her dead brother. Yeah, I know, you just want to shake your head like that. And of course it's funny too, yeah. <laughs> You're all wicked people. <laughs> so the point then is this. Antigone at one level, is a great martyr for universal moral justice. She's also uh, a, deeply uh, a deeply confused adolescent girl with a very unwholesome fixation, a sexual fixation, on her dead brother. Yeah. So, yeah, she talks a good game about natural law, but as she's being led to her death, which reminds her, of course, of sex, that's really bad. Um, she says, you know, now that I think about it, 
dealt with natural law. I mean, you know, with my, my husband, my child, I don't care. Polynices, him I have to take care of. Yeah, I know, it's really <laughs> twisted. So, um, this poor girl. Now, many uh, readers and many critics, including Goethe, some very famous ones, have said, look, that doesn't belong there. That's not part of the play. That can be part of the play. Um, the best we can tell from the textual evidence, yes, it is part of the play. It's not an interpolation. It's not something that somebody else put in there. This is the actual genuine Sophocles. So the point then is this. Do not oversimplify this play. She is a totally, she's a psychological nightmare. All right? There's no psychiatrist that could work this problem out. I say marriage bed, you say tomb. All right, that's terrific. Uh, I don't see how we can fix this. You know, this is like a, when I go fishing, my friends occasionally bring me fishing reels that they made a complete mess of, and if they've done a bad enough job, I say, look, I can't figure, I can't untangle this, just cut, cut the line, get rid of it. And the tangles of uh, Antigone's mind are the kind where a psychiatrist might plausibly say, look, I, there's just nothing I can do for this. Um, you want to have sex with your brother and he's dead, which is not a good thing. And you claim that you're doing this out of nobility and natural law, and in fact, you're driven by incestuous desires that you don't understand or control. Ouch. So, of course, she ends up dead. Haman ends up dead, but doesn't end up dead until he tries to kill his father and spits in his father and curses his father. And then, quiet Eurydice, and I like her, uh, the silence is really ominous there. Says, uh, I'm going to go back to my house and kill myself. But before I do, I want to make sure that I curse Creel, and everybody knows it. Okay? So, here we have the ultimate familial dysfunction. Oedipus is Oedipus. And that's a problem. Jocasta is dead. Uh, Ismene survives, but what kind of life does she have? Everybody else ends up dead, mostly by suicide. All right? So curses are all too real for the Greeks, as they were for the writers of the Old Testament. They are magical words with magical properties, same sort of thing with blessings. For example, in the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, blessed are the peacemakers, he's not describing the peacemakers as being blessed. He's saying it's a performative I say the peacemakers are blessed. It's like I now pronounce you man and wife. It's a performative. Right? Um, here, nobody understands himself very well. And when they do, it's at variance with the idea of nothing too much. Even the greatest of human benefits, which is this connection at Delphi between man and God, we can find out what the gods think, even that has its limitations and its imperfections. We get told, know thyself and nothing to excess, that didn't help Oedipus. It also didn't help Antigone. As a matter of fact, it hasn't helped anybody in any of these plays. They're all dead, killing themselves after engaging in incest. Right? Remember when I said the tragedy is about irrevocable mistakes? Well, pretty much there's nothing anybody can do. Uh, Antigone hung herself. Haman killed himself, and Eurydice just goes and kills herself thoughtfully off stage. We don't have to watch, we don't have to the body count increase. But then this Creon saying, Wow, I really messed that up. 
admirable. Yeah, of course, you messed that up. Now, your life has been spared just like Oedipus's life was spared, and your life is totally messed up too. You thought you were going to avoid this, the curse of the house of Oedipus? No, you're going to be the final installment. Now, this, I think you'll all admit, is fun for the whole family. I mean, you really want to raise your kids on these sorts of myths because it's so wholesome. I mean, there's just one memorable moment after another. And, of course, that six- or eight-year-old should be exposed to this would be normal in Athenian society. Yeah. Makes me think of poor Mill. Oh, yeah, right, exactly. Well, Mill, well, Mill's subject to a different set of myths, but you're right. God help us, John Stuart Mill. We'll talk about him when we get the chance. Well, what was the point of Sophocles including that little like hidden thing about Antigone? What would the point of that be? The point of that is to show that this is not just a morality play. It's not like every man from the Middle Ages. This is not meant to be um, the, the good young girl against the wicked old king. In fact, the wicked old king is really wicked, but she's totally twisted. And she thinks she understands herself, but she doesn't. Right. So be careful about people that can make good speeches about the lofty intent that lies behind their actions. They may well get driven by impulses that they neither control nor understand. Think of it this way. Drop back in your own mind. Think of your first crush. All right. You all had one. Don't tell me differently. Okay. Um, you no doubt thought, you know, what the hell is this? I mean, here I am being pushed around by feelings I didn't know I had and that I don't know how to control. Why do I feel drawn in this direction? And whatever it is, um, it's not rational. This is not something I'm choosing. This is something that's being imposed on me. In other words, um, everyone has uh, irrational sexual impulses that are built into them. And while it might be that our lives would be much more much less complicated if we didn't, we're stuck with them. So when the Greeks say that human beings are rational animals, you want to put a little asterisk next to that. They are potentially rational animals some of the time. None of you are going to get married rationally. And it's a good thing, too. I mean, you want to fill out a checklist? No, no one wants to live like that. In other words, um, the irrational comes to the center of our considerations when we consider rationality and the limits of human rationality. All right? Here Creon thinks he's making good sense, but no, he wrecks everything. Completely destroys his family and himself. Antigone thinks she's making sense, but she's not. All right? The two boys, nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's on a one-way trip. All right? And so the interplay of rationality and irrationality is what makes Antigone in particular a deeply disturbing play. In other words, it's not just uh, a battle between good and evil. It's not a melodrama. In this case, rather, there's no good side. There's a crazy girl who doesn't know why she's doing this who gets herself killed. And there's a crazy king who thinks he knows why he's doing what he's doing, and he gets his whole family killed. He'd, he'd be better off dead. He ends up at uh, the end of Antigone the way Oedipus ends up at the end of Oedipus Tyrannus. 
All right? He'd be better off dead, but he isn't. Okay? Now, next week, do I understand this correctly? We're doing Euripides? Okay, here's the score. Um, Euripides is a guilty pleasure of mine. All right? He's, he's even more twisted than this. I happen to like it, but I feel bad when I like it, and often I, I think, feel like, I don't know, that I should do some sort of penance for really enjoying it. <laughs> You're going to like it, too. The things you laugh at are really starting to worry. Okay. Um, three plays. Who wants to do them? One is the Trojan women. You ever thought of what it would be like, because Euripides does, what would it be like to be on the losing end of the Iliad? It turns out it really sucks. So Oedipus is going to be, or rather uh, Euripides is going to be going after the Homeric ideal. What's to do with the Trojan women? Gentlemen, the ladies um, decided they like Sophocles. You get the Trojan women. If I might, I'd yep. very much like to do Bacchae, if that's Well, you do the Bacchae, then. You like the Bacchae? I very much so. That's a bad sign, too. I like it, too. It's just, you know, it, it makes it? me wonder, wonder about your mental health. Who was it who said that uh, tragedy is when I stub my toe, comedy is when you fall in a manhole and die? Yeah, okay, it's something to that, yeah. <laughs> I like that, too. Um, we're also going to be doing... Uh, Medea. Medea is angry. <laughs> and when she's angry, she gets all upset. You're doing Medea. Yeah. Okay, because you think it's funny. Um, you're sick enough to do that. Okay. And what's the other one? We got Medea. We the have Trojan women. What? Trojan women. Uh, the Trojan women I've done. No, he's Oh, he's Bacchae. got the Bacchae. All right, the Bacchae, all right, is all about rationality. The Trojan women is all about the Homeric idea and why what comes around goes around. And Medea shows just how crazy people can get. She's very upset. And, uh, well, she has a bang-up finish. And, uh, of course, she's going to make a deal with King Aegisthus you know, the father of Theseus, that's going to get her off scot-free. 